0: Welcome to the Tally Room podcast. I'm Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be assessing the state of the polling at the beginning of the federal election campaign and the role of independence in the upcoming election. We'll also touch on the final results of the New South Wales Upper House vote count, which concluded earlier today. I'm joined by two guests tonight. My first guest is Sean Ratcliffe. Sean is a lecturer in political science at the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, where he lectures and teaches public opinion, data science, political strategy, and research design. Hello, Sean. Hi, Ben. And my second guest is Paddy Manning. Patty is contributing editor for The Monthly and author of three books, including a recently updated biography of former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull called Born to Rule. Hello, Patty. Hi, Ben. So, the federal election was finally called last Thursday with the election date set as the 18th of May. We're recording on Monday night, and the most recent polls all have Labour with a small but steady lead. Polls in early April from Essential, News Poll, Ipsos, and Roy Morgan all put Labour on 52 to 53% of the two party preferred vote. Sean, what have the trends been in federal polling over the, over the current term of parliament?
1: Yeah, so for most of the last term, Ben, uh, the Labor Party has been ahead pretty much since the 2016 election. That was tightening up last uh, year under Malcolm Turnbull, right before he was uh, rolled in the Liberal Party leadership and the prime ministership. Uh, and it was getting pretty close to 49-51, which based on historical results could have led to a uh, coalition win if if that had been the result or the result had only been slightly better than that uh, at the 2019 election. But obviously, after uh, Malcolm Turnbull was removed as Prime Minister and Scott Morrison uh, was, was appointed by the party room, the, the polling went back quite steeply in, in the Labor Party's favour. It has been narrowing a little bit since then, but we're still looking at something like 48-52 in Labor's favour.
0: So there, there clearly was a trend towards the Liberal Party before Malcolm Turnbull was replaced. That's right. Does it, does it kind of look like... We've just kind of ended up back where we were a year ago now. Uh,
1: it's still looking a little bit better for Labor than it did immediately before uh, Malcolm Turnbull was removed. So it was getting very close, or it was even, forty nine fifty one 51 uh, by the time uh, the conservative components of the Liberal Party moved against him. Um, I have a pet theory that they actually removed him because he was going to win the next election, not because he was going to lose. Um, but we don't obviously won't know for sure whether that was the case and probably never will. Um, but they're still the coalition still may be about a point behind where they were uh, immediately before Malcolm Turnbull was removed.
2: Hmm. I think that's also uh, Malcolm Turnbull's theory.
1: <laughs> well, it probably suits him. Um,
2: I, I probably actually agree with him on that point. <laughs>
0: Uh, yes. Paddy, do you have any thoughts about um, where that polling stands and what that tells us about the campaign?
2: Oh, the, only that the trend, if you look at it, is kind of back in, you know, uh, towards the tightening, I suppose. And so it seems to me that in the last... Well, since the election has called, suddenly there's a kind of vibe around of, um, that, you know, um, Morrison is certainly competitive, and Labor, although it's maybe because it's the favourite, could lose, um, could well lose. Maybe being the underdog, is actually going to work in Morrison's favour. Uh, and so, yeah, with the New South Wales precedent that we've just had, we've watched a campaign, you know, uh, Michael Daly's campaign go um, off the rails in the last week and it sort of has reminiscent of the, what happened to Latham in 2004 and you, um, I think there's, um, there's real concern that Labor under Shorten, who's not popular, um, could well make a similar um, misstep. And
1: Morrison prevails. I would just um, respond to Patty's point um, about um, daily and, and comparisons with Shorten. One difference is, and, and Daily shows the danger of putting a new leader in so close to an election where they're not tested, mm. they maybe don't have the profile that they need, and, and things can come out of the you know closet, like there's skeletons in there. And um, Shorten, for all these faults, is at least relatively, uh, you know... Um, he's got a quite controlled uh, public persona and, and I'd be surprised if something similar happened.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's, this is his second election as leader, yeah. which is yeah. a pretty unusual thing for an opposition leader and I think that's probably Shorten's biggest strength is yeah. people know him and, I mean, the, co- the the coalition seems to think it's some kind of advantage of theirs to kind of go after him personally but I kind of look at the polling now compared to, say, when Kevin Rudd was around and it's like, you know, if Labor wins under someone like Bill Shorten that probably does say something, does put them in a kind of stronger position because they haven't won on the back of one man's great popularity.
1: And the personal popularity of the leader isn't very predictive of who's going to win the election. John Howard was Mm. generally not very popular. Um, His opponents were often favoured over him in in many ratings. Um, So relying on the leader's popularity isn't necessarily a good strategy.
0: It can be a problem, but I think often... When we have someone who's kind of a bit of a boring leader or an uncharismatic leader, Australians quite seem, sometimes seem to like having that kind of person in power. Yeah. Whether it's John Howard or Bob Carr or someone like that, better boring than unpredictable.
2: <laughs> and comparisons those 4 fall down because um, Morrison, the incumbent, is certainly not John Howard. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, and he's making mistakes. You know, um, which Howard. Um by the time he was he was well and truly you know fighting for his um political wife in two thousand and four up against Latham, who was you know a red hot challenger earlier that year and um and yeah he was a you know he played that campaign masterfully from the you know who do you trust to keep your interest rates low all, all the way through to campaigning in long and on forests? And yeah, you, it's hard to imagine that Morrison has that the smarts or the um, confidence to outplay Short the same way Howard did against Latham.
0: What are you What are your thoughts about the this the what the polling can tell us about how yeah. the different states are going?
1: Yep. So so there's different patterns in different states, and and the national polling uh, generally is pretty accurate. So normally. The, the final two-party preferred vote is pretty close to what the polls say it is immediately before the election. Now, that can change over the course of a campaign, as we've seen in the past, mm-hmm. sometimes quite dramatically. Uh, but normally, the polls close to the election are pretty accurate, but that doesn't always tell us who's going to win. Obviously, in 1998, for instance, Howard did not win the two-party preferred vote, but won the election. So mm. So that's why knowing what's going on closer to the ground can be helpful. The problem for us is a lot of uh, seat level polling is quite bad. So mm. um, we look at you know polls for Warringah, for instance, where we've seen a couple come out over the last few months, uh, but they normally have far worse accuracy than national polls. So. Warringah
0: is an interesting one because I think I think it has value in that it tells you that you know I mean we'll we'll come to Warringah and other seats like it in a bit, but it has value because it tells you that that particular person has has some chance of getting elected. Yep, but it um. But it's not going to be precise enough to be able to tell you if they're actually in with a chance of winning. Yeah. Like it tells you, okay, Zali Stegles, you know, not polling five percent. She's she's more viable than that. Yes, she's a absolutely. serious contender. Yep. But um I mean that was an issue with the public polls we saw in Wentworth, for example, that in the end not a lot of attention was paid to them because in the end Phelps won, but she won much more narrowly than the the poll suggested her problem would be getting into second, um, but that she, she would easily win if she made it to second, and that wasn't really what happened. Yeah, in the she end, but...
1: she got second quite easily, but then <laughs> it was close on two party before, yeah. or two candidate preferred yeah. So um, looking at patterns in different parts of the country, though, one thing I've noticed that's um, quite interesting is in recent months, um, WA has gone back to the coalition. Mm-hmm. So so traditionally a very strong state for the coalition, um, a state where there might be a few seats to pick up potentially for Labor. Um, a good example is Michael Keenan, seat of Stirling. He's retiring. Uh, used to be a Labor seat. He's got a pretty solid margin, but we don't know, uh, you know, what, what how much that's personal vote, how much of it's something else. But uh, the Labor vote has has declined in WA, so it's going back to its traditional status as a, it seems, as a coalition stronghold. So the the, the seats there that the Labor Party might have hoped to pick up, maybe aren't mm. so easy to win anymore. Uh, but but Victoria obviously looks very strong for the coal, uh, for the Labor Party, and you'd think seats like Chisholm, where we've got a, a, a sitting member leaving and cont- in fact running against our own party, contesting another seat, um, you'd expect Labor to pick up quite easily.
2: Uh, whether there's going to be a backlash in Tasmania, whether against um, you know those three, uh, including Braden, uh, those you know. Won narrowly in, the, in that Super Saturday by, by elections last last year. So whether Labor goes backwards in Tasmania, and I think that so has the potential to you know, offset any gains it might make in Queensland. We saw today that One Nation is going to be pre- preferencing the LNP in Queensland, which it didn't do in the 16 election, and whether that's really going to help the LNP, and in fact, so the so the gains that Labor is hoping to make if Queensland was going to be the deciding state in this election that might not be there. To, to make, you know, so yeah, it just seems to be getting tighter and tighter, and then it's confused by all of the different, which we'll get onto in a second, all the different kind of seats where, um, you know, the Nats are on the back foot, or you know, facing challenges from independents, or, or the lid, uh, the Liberals in the city, yeah, whether it's Warringah or Wentworth or, or Keong, uh, you know, they're on the back foot, so, um. Yeah, I find it. You know, it's my first election that I've never, I've never covered one before, and uh, I find it um, incredibly. It's overwhelming. It's hard to, um, <laughs> hard to assemble a picture.
0: There isn't there isn't a very clear trend one way or the no. other. I mean, that's the thing that clearly there is a national swing to Labor, and neither party effectively has a majority at the moment. Partly because of redistributions, and partly because of seats that the coalition has lost but you could easily see a situation where seats are swinging in both directions in different parts of the country.
1: I think Patty's right about Queensland. Um, it's always a pretty key state, and the coast, particularly the coast of Queensland, sort of going from Brisbane all the way up to Cairns, Townsville, um, tends to be quite volatile. And there's a number of seats going right up the coast from uh, the seat of Brisbane itself, which the the Liberal Party won. Um, and you'd think, based on the national swings, might be in danger of going Labor. Um, all the way up uh, to
0: well, the, top possibly, of the country. or possibly the Greens as well.
1: Yeah, possibly. Um, I, I would probably suspect Labor has a better chance, but mm-hmm. you never know with a yeah. university seat. Um, all the way up to Leichhardt, which covers Cairns and Cape York, uh, is very marginal. Um, so likehart Uh, and but but one nation, as Patty said, one the one nation vote is really hard to predict. Um, and what it's going to do up there, they did very well in eight seats last time. Mm. Um. And and that was a big surprise for a lot of people. And they might do better next time. I think they got over 10% in eight seats.
0: So the seats on the north coast of Queensland that are particularly crucial are Herbert, which is the seat that Labor just narrowly won 37 votes the last election. But then there's also Leichhardt, which is the Cairns area and goes up Cape York. Uh, Dawson, which is primarily the Mackay area. Capricornia is primarily Rockhampton and... Uh, Flynn, which is primarily Gladstone, so yep. those kind of five based on five main towns of North Queensland are all extremely marginal yep um, and you know if they swing one way or the other consistently that that is that makes a big difference um yep. having said that, I mean you know if labour is doing as well as sometimes it's it's said in Victoria, you could imagine a situation where they basically don't the needle doesn't move in Queensland, and labour makes plenty of gains in Victoria and pulls it all off that way but you know that that's that's a solid group of seats that's in play
1: yeah and you'd you'd probably want to pick up some of them and and the one nation vote if it does do well regionally um, as, as is very possible uh and their preferences overwhelmingly go to the coalition that could save some of those seats for the coalition and makes Labor's job a little bit harder hmm. every seat they don't pick up there they've got to pick up somewhere else I, can't I to
2: thought... imagine George christensen getting back in in Dawson
0: yeah, I mean yeah for sure I see that having said that it doesn't seem like the easiest seat for a particular the margin labour for labor to pick up, but, um, you know, that's, that's going to be, that's going to be a complicated one. I don't know. Maybe one nation will do that. will do well. There people who are happy with Christensen, but want someone else. But, um, it's just, it's, it's hard to see that many seats that you can confidently say, well, that one's going to go. I think I tend to think Chisholm, um, but I think that's probably just the nature of the election, that it's like, yeah, Labor's in the lead. Labor, Labor's likely to win government, but then this isn't a landslide victory we're looking at.
1: There, there'll be a lot of sandbagging in marginal seats for the coalition, assuming they can afford it.
0: Well, that's that's the other thing too, yeah.
1: Yeah, they they ran out of money last time, so they may run out of money this time, and that could hurt them fighting some of these marginal seats. But obviously none of us know the financial state of the coalition campaign. So maybe they've got more money than they uh, than we thought or think.
2: Tony Abbott's been able to raise a million dollars or whatever it is to defend Moringa. To be honest, I can't say that Kooyong is vulnerable for the Liberal Party particularly. It's, a, it's an important seat, um, and there's going to be a hell of a lot of attention to it. But to my mind, if there's a backlash against the Liberals coming in Victoria, it's against the people like, um, you know, Suka or, you know, maybe Greg Hunt, uh, not so much against Josh Frydenberg. Um, if you think it's driven by climate change, Frydenberg is, you know, he was was—he—he he went to the barricades for action on climate change. Um, and on top of that, I mean, he's got, you know, s- such a big margin and he's, you know, he's an effective uh, MP, a, a good communicator, I think. Well, I mean, we'll get to that, I suppose. Well,
0: I've, I think we can probably go there now. Um, unless you have any other thoughts. Well, on I was just going to say yeah, go that
1: um, we shouldn't overestimate how much individual voters know about their local candidates. So I'm not sure people are going to be voting based on whether or not their member is good on climate change or not, but rather their perceptions of the party as a whole.
0: That's definitely true. I I think I think there's a sort of educated in a city electorate where maybe the individual. Um, characteristics of the MP matter more than in other other electorates, but I, I think that's definitely true generally.
1: Yeah, there's only a small number of high profile cases I'd say where people are learning about their individual candidate because of their profile and, mm. and voting for them. Um, mm. I'm not sure Friedenberg's particularly well known um, outside of you know people that are very very interested in
2: politics. Said that he just did hand down a, the first surplus budget, and that would have registered. I think, with voters. I think that is probably the strongest point that the Liberals have got in their re-election campaign this year is they're having returned the budget to surplus and economic management in general and he's sort of the face of it. So anyway, that just goes to my feeling that he's going to probably hold his seat.
1: I agree with you on the second point, Paddy. He probably will hold his seat. Uh, I'd be surprised if more than a quarter of voters could name Josh Frydenberg
0: though. Just to finish off on before we before we talk about the other seats. I think the thing about Kuyong is, uh, there's a lot of unhappiness with the government and he's associated with that because he's, he's one of the new leadership regime. I, I don't think it's all necessarily about him. I think it's a reflection that this is one of those kinds of seats where people are unhappy with the government and, yeah, like there's there's an educated constituency in certain kinds of electorates where people are more likely to know their individual MP. But I think Freidenberg mostly just comes across as as sort of a down-the-line liberal typical liberal like not the hardest of the hard right but also not not seen as like particularly progressive or iconoclastic or anything and so I think in the current environment that's his vulnerability but it is it is a hard it it is a high um barrier to to climb but i mean we've we i think we saw some polling late last year that that said that labor labor had a chance in kuyong which i i think i think was probably the extreme end of things, but I think it does reflect that there's a there's a, there's a shift going on in that area that people are kind of at least looking at, like kind of tossing around their options.
1: That was right after Malcolm, or closer to when yeah. Malcolm Turnbull was removed. And, and I think it was seats like Kooyong that, where voters, traditional Liberal voters would react the strongest against Malcolm Turnbull's removal. The farther we get away from that, the less likely that is probably to influence too many people's votes.
0: So there's been a spike in prominent challenges to the Liberal Party in a series of blue ribbon electorates in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth this election. Uh, the most prominent is undoubtedly is Ali Stegall, who is running a challenge to Tony Abbott in Moringa. As we just discussed uh, in the seat of Kooyong, Oliver Yates is challenging Josh Frydenberg, um, as is uh, Greens candidate Julian Burnside. We've also seen uh, ex-Liberal MP Julia Banks. She's running in Flinders against Greg Hunt, and uh, Louise Stewart is running in Curtin. This is in addition to a number of kind of centrist women who hold traditional Liberal seats already, such as Cathy McGowan in Indi and Rebecca Sharkey, who's a member of the Centre Alliance but kind of sometimes seems to operate a bit more like an independent in Mayo, and uh, Karen Phelps, who got elected last year in Wentworth. So, Paddy, I mean, what do you think explains the spike in these challenges, how many we're seeing?
2: Well, I do think that it is to do with um, climate and I do think it's to do with uh, in the cities, um it's to do with climate, and to do with the um, you know coup against Malcolm Turnbull. And I've been struggling to think, there's, I'm sure in you know someone more liter- literate than me would know, I I feel like Malcolm Turnbull has you know achieved um, in his political death what he couldn't achieve in his political life, which is that he's um, become a kind of talisman for. Because he because he was taken down over the National Energy Guarantee, he's become a kind of talisman for people, liberals who are concerned about climate change, and um, and has and they've been energised uh, to you know whether it's Oliver Yates or Zali Steggall or Karen Phelps or um, they've been energised to. Uh, give their party a, um, you know, the natural party a good kick, and so yeah, somewhere in world literature there must be an example of a person who achieves in death what they couldn't achieve in life, but I have not been able to think of it. Anyway, that, so I think that that is the prime, you know, driver, and it's a similar. There's a there's a similar kind of um, thematic, it seems to me, also in some of the country um, challenges uh, when you see the failure of. Um, you know the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and the fish kills and the, you know, failure uh, to deal with climate um, in rural areas where it's actually going to have the most impact. So, um, so, yeah, at the risk of being, um, you know, a bit of a climate obsessive, I do, I do, I think that's why, um, or one reason why this might be called a climate election is that, you know, each of these independents are saying it's the number one issue for them. And, um, and certainly that's the case for Oliver Yates. And I mean, I've spoken to not all of them, but, um, you know, a good clutch of them. Um, and, and I'll bet you it's also true for someone like um, Rob Oakeshott, you know, in, um, in Cowper, mm-hmm. you know, who was obviously part of the Multi-Party Climate Change Committee under Julia Gillard and brought in a carbon price. And, uh, you know, uh, there is a kind of uh, a backlash, I think, that um, that is kind of city and country... And is partly at least driven by concern about climate change and the fact that the government has done has done nothing
0: clearly climate change is is one of the big animating issues sort of you can't really separate it from the internal conflict that that we have seen in the liberal party right that there's a sort of there has been a split in the liberal base that has created this opening we we're yet to see how many people will actually vote for it but it's it's definitely that there's definitely been some kind of split where people who maybe would be more comfortable with a moderate liberal kind of position have looked somewhere else, looking looking elsewhere. And um, I think it probably will be a challenge for the Liberal Party, particularly if they lose power, about how do they consolidate, how do they kind of reconcile those that kind of strain of support? Because I think probably a lot of people who have those views live in electorates where they're probably just going to end up voting the Liberals anyway. But in those seats where someone has come up who's an option for them. I think some people will take it. I mean, it does appear like Zali Steggles, the one who has the best the best shot, um, as well as, you know, we don't really know about someone like Rob Oakeshott, but he did pretty well last time after announcing he was running a couple of weeks out. Yeah, uh,
2: well, I was just reading, he's only, what, 5% away, and he's a known quantity. Yep. And, um, and Luke Hartzick are retiring. I mean, you would have to say that's a hard seat to call. Mm, uh, I think absolutely. I think it's pretty hard to imagine... Um, Julia Banks knocking off Greg Hunt in uh, Flinders because he's, you know, he's been a senior. I mean, I, I, bearing in mind what you say, Sean, that probably a lot of people couldn't identify who he was. Nevertheless, he has been a senior, you know, cabinet minister, um, and and you know, a long time representative there.
1: So I was just going to say, I think Flinders is less receptive to a more moderate message. I think one of the things we're seeing in some of these seats is they're inner suburban. Wealthy, well-educated Liberal seats. And I'd say seats like Cooyong, Higgins, uh, Warringah, Wentworth tend to be more socially moderate, even if they're economically conservative. So the Liberal Party does well because their constituents are generally very – they're voting Mm. on their economic self-interest, essentially.
0: It's worth noting Flinders – I think we've also seen some polling saying Labor – has a shot in Flinders and it does appear that Labor is putting a bit more effort into Flinders than you might normally expect. I think that's probably there's a broader trend that there's that kind of oh, that's interesting. swathe of seats in Melbourne that Labor wouldn't normally think they have a shot in and there does appear to be evidence that they're putting in campaign resources. So uh it could also be a place where Labor goes, we we reckon we've got a shot too. So I think Flinders it's there's the there's the kind of climate liberal uh um, moderate message yeah. um but I think it, it also in in Victoria in particular it's been caught up in the this potentially higher swing against the government yeah. that might be yeah. going on in Victoria. But no,
1: I think um Warringah probably is the exception to the rule I stated earlier when I was talking about Kuyong, where the local member has such a high profile. Mm. You know, there's very few there are very few Australian citizens that couldn't name Tony Abbott. Um, he's very well known and, and his general social conservatism is well known and the funny thing about tony abbott and Warringah is he's a terrible fit for his seat in a lot of ways
0: it's economic has been since day one
1: yeah yeah but um it wasn't traditionally the problem in the problem in the past but i think removing malcolm turnbull and his role in that um has probably hurt him because i think malcolm turnbull's probably far more popular in Warringah than tony abbott is Uh, he turnbull's a much better fit for abbott's seat than abbott is Mm. Um, although economically conservative it's fairly socially liberal you look at its vote in the in the um, same-sex marriage plebiscite, in, in the Republican referendum in 99. Uh, it's a socially moderate or even socially liberal seat. And uh, and, and Abbott's sort of the, the standard bearer of social conservatism within the Liberal Party. Uh, and now his uh, constituents since Turnbull's removal have been made to think about that. And they've got a viable alternative. I mean... Um, They had a less viable alternative last election, and he got a pretty big swing against him. So, Mm. um, you know, that's the one seat. I think for those reasons that you know, if if a liberal was going
0: to lose their seat to an independent, the other angle to note about all these races is that you know whether or not uh, these independents have a chance of winning. I mean, I think a number of them have a chance of winning, but whether or not they win, uh, it's it's effectively creating a second front, which means that the the government kind of. you know, okay, they're not massively behind in the polls. they have lots of places where they can fight fight um the election, but they they're facing labor in their typical marginals and then they're facing this other opponent um which you know is not always the same one in every seat but there there is a trend there, and I think that's going to make things really hard for them because they're kind of being pulled in different directions and that feels different to previous elections where we have we've seen governments become unpopular, but we don't we don't usually see that kind of Crumbling of their of their base in that way.
2: If you've got you know a twenty percent swing or nineteen percent swing in Wentworth, um, you know, or you've got a fifteen percent primary vote for um, One Nation in Longman, or you've got something like the Victorian um, election result where you know Heartland Liberal seek, you know getting smashed. Uh, it's sort of like big swings everywhere, and it's hard for the Liberal Party and the Nationals um, to know where exactly where to focus. Those outlying kind of um, results, kind of. Put everything in play, and I suppose they have to have to, yeah. That spreads them, you know, ever thinner. Um, so, and and bearing in mind that they have to win seats, not just defend, um, even just to you know to reclaim a majority.
1: I think this is a big problem because these are normally seats that export money and, mm. and volunteers <laughs> mm. to other marginal seats. So places like Higgins and Kuong and Koo-Yong and Wentworth and and Warringah, they're normally places where the Liberal Party raises funds. And, and and recruits volunteers that go work in marginal seats, um, you know, uh, and and in they're probably acting in reverse this time. They're pulling money
0: and volunteers into these seats, and some of that is going to the Liberal Party in those seats, but some of that is probably also going to their opponents in those <coughs> seats. Absolutely, um, I, I think Karen
1: Phelps in in Wentworth almost certainly pulled some traditional Liberals to donate and volunteer for her um, during the by-election. Presumably that will happen again. Hmm. Um, and, and that creates a big problem. And and I think that goes on to what Patty was saying about um, the role of climate change. I think beyond that, it's it's this idea that perhaps by rolling Malcolm Turnbull, the Liberal Party's finally said there's no place for sort of smaller Liberals in the party, or at least it's a very much a secondary place and they'll never be able to lead the party. And so some smaller Liberals are turning their backs and saying, well, if that's the case, they'll support independence. Why, why donate or volunteer for the party if uh, your brand of centre-right politics doesn't have a place in it?
2: Sobs has got something to show for her nine-month stint in Parliament already uh, in the form of those Medivac laws. Um, she can go back to her electorate and say, oh, i actually achieved something. It's not just the Liberals, it's the Nats as well.
0: I think that's the thing we forget. And maybe it's because we're, we're more used to having those kind of independent challenges in those National Party seats, but... You know, you're right about Oakshot. Um, I, I keep hearing chatter Labor's. about Farrah. Uh, I don't really know that much about how how viable that is. And now the shooters are announcing that they're running in um, some Western New South Wales seats.
2: First. Yeah, so, I was waiting to see what their candidates were and which, which seats they were targeting. And um, I haven't been able no. to see that yet. But obviously, if the New South Wales result replicates, and that's where I think the, you know, Gabrielle Chan from the Guardian, her analysis about rusted off is so valid is, and I know this from my own experience of covering um, coal seam gaps and writing about fracking and touring some of these, um, you know, agricultural areas with, you know, Darling Downs or Liverpool Plains and 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 finding that the National Party is absolutely, you know, hated amongst a certain section of the farmers because they've, you know, compromise their water security and, and perceived to have sold them out, sold out their what should be their natural constituency of farmers uh, in favour of miners, which goes to what, you know, um, Wally Daly was asking on the project of Michael McNamara, you know, name a single example where, um, you know, the Nationals have put the farmers' interests over those of the miners and he couldn't even think of one. And half the, you know, half the leaders that the National Party has had have gone straight off to work for mining companies, whether it's Mark Bale or John Anderson. And I think there is a really deep sense that the Nationals have sold out their rural constituency and they're pretty vulnerable anyway. You know, they're pretty concentrated in New South Wales and Queensland anyway. And um, if they lose, for example, you know, a few more seats in New South Wales to, um, you know, the shooters or, you know, heaven forbid, you know, um, Adam Blakester was successful in knocking off Barnaby Joyce, for example, in New England, um, because you know, maybe those voters are, are pretty jack of the way they were treated in that by-election. You know, I, know, I know that's unlikely, um, extremely unlikely even. But you know, I think there's you know, whether it's Malley, Andrew Broad, hmm. you know, there is a backlash on against the Nationals.
1: This is something that often happens when the nuts are in, or the Coalition's in government. Hmm. Um, they make decisions that are ultimately unpopular in their electorates lose seats to independence and then win them back in opposition.
0: Yeah, which is which is yet another reason to think that even if the polling isn't particularly strong, there's a whole bunch of these trends that are going to make the campaign harder for the government.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly the coalition, they're fighting a three or four front war and they, they lost their two most popular uh, members of parliament who are also their best fundraisers. They probably didn't make some wise decisions last year and they've put themselves in a difficult position where they're fighting in seats they shouldn't be fighting and they probably have, although we don't know for sure, they probably have less money than they otherwise would and they don't have anyone particularly popular leading
0: their campaign. So finally, earlier today counting finished for the New South Wales state election with the pushing of the button for the Upper House. The Animal Justice Party performed particularly well today... Jumping over the Liberal Democrats, Christian Democratic Party and One Nation to pick up the 20th seat. One Nation held on to win their second seat, while former LDP Senator David Lionhelm and Christian Democrat MLC Paul Green both missed out. This was the first election since 1981 where Fred Niles' party missed out on electing anyone. It also has demonstrated the increasing power of voters' preferences in the New South Wales Upper House. The first first two elections under this voting system in 2003 and 2007 saw preferences have no impact on the result. This changed with the defeat of Pauline Hanson in 2011 and then the Animal Justice Party's win in 2015. So this time around, more than 30% of voters marked preferences beyond a single one and the trend was much stronger on the left. Labor and animal justice gained much stronger preference flows from other parties of the left, while very few preferences flowed amongst right-wing parties. So we're we're just touching on that quickly because um, we've covered the state election so much, but um, there'll be more analysis on on my website about that. Do do either of you have any thoughts about that state election result?
1: It's going to be fun passing legislation
0: through the upper house. It will be. So there is a kind of majority amongst the right-wing minor parties for the Liberal Party, but it requires Fred Nile... Both One Nation people, including Mike Latham, and both shooters, um, which which seems like there might be times where that, that isn't possible. Notoriously
2: easy people to get along with. Patty. And Justin Field in there, putting his hand up for to deal with the government as well.
0: Yeah, well, that will be interesting as well, because there is a block of, there's now two Animal Justice and uh, Justin Field separate. So it does kind of create an alternative path for the government if they want to kind of move shift slightly towards the left and particularly if they find Mark Latham too difficult to deal with?
2: I'm really interested in how the fracturing of the kind of left, like the the Animal Justice Party has done and Kids Kid the Open to an extent, and um, and a bunch of other small parties sort of on the left have done to the Greens what the Greens did to Labor and and the Greens can't afford to lose one and one percent here and two percent there and three, let alone three percent
0: anywhere.
2: Mm. Uh, you know, off their primary vote um, in whether it's in the Senate or the you know Legislative Council in New South Wales or you know they 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 can't afford that fracturing and especially um, I guess with optional preferential voting. Although it does suggest that you know on the left people are more sophisticated in their voting and that they do preference um, you know deliberately and so forth, but. Um, yeah, you know really um, if you look at you know the greens should have another seat uh, it seems to me um, mm. naturally and that they've and by allowing the animal justice party to you know similar story in Victoria I think they get they get sort of you know two and a half percent of the vote there you know by allowing the you know animal justice party to get a foothold uh, the greens have um, it's a threat to the greens
0: yeah, for sure. I mean, they they also won two seats in in twenty fifteen as well. But it does does appear that yes, so preferences do flow amongst these parties. But the Greens can no longer rely on being the kind of sole party parliamentary party to the left of Labor.
2: No, um, there's a there's a bunch of them. Uh, but then it's interesting today. If you know the analysis of news polls suggests that you know perhaps there's actually perhaps the pendulum is going to start swinging back away from independence and away from... So, to, contrary to all of the analysis we've just done, you know, today's news polls suggest uh, that there's a jump... I mean, my, it's mainly the dissipation of the One Nation vote, uh, but there's a, there's a jump in the primary vote of the major party, and um, and perhaps a return um, back towards them from independence and minor parties.
1: I would warn against reading too much into a single news poll, though. Um,
2: You know, it could be noise.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think there's going to be a bit of a reckoning for some of the minor parties in the Senate in particular. There's a lot of minor parties running there, but I I think we're a long way... I mean, I don't think there's anything inevitable or permanent about minor parties and independents getting stronger, Um, but I think we're a while away from from a kind of reconsolidation of the major parties. So that's about it for this episode of The Tally Room Podcast. Thank you to Paddy. Thank you. And thanks, Sean. Thanks, Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Chris DeBrow for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.